God speaks to us in Mark 4, starting in verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in the parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Well, good morning, Frontline Shompton. <laughs> good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, again, I serve downtown as a pastoral resident. It means I just get to practice ministry on people like you. Uh, so if I say anything crazy or off the wall, just reach out to uh, Ben, uh, send him an email, something like that. No, you can ask me afterwards. I would love to, love to talk with, uh, with you about anything that I, that I say up here. So let's go to God one more time in prayer before we go to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just gather here together under the lordship of your son and recognizing that this is a privilege to sing to you, to take your supper to pray, to read scripture, and to, to sit under preaching. And so we, we thank you that you've given us a voice to hear. So I just pray that you would speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you ever walk into a Starbucks for the first time, uh, you will quickly realize that ordering a coffee is a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. You recognize the words that are being used, they're very English words, but they take on another meaning from what you're used to. If you, quickly feel like, uh, if you quickly feel like everyone is, sorry, I need to stop writing manuscripts, just shoot from the hip. Uh, uh, you quickly feel like everybody is looking at me and like I don't belong here ordering this coffee. You feel like an outsider of sorts when they ask you what size and you respond, I'll take a small please. And they reply, okay, a tall it is. You're thinking, I didn't order a large coffee. And then they tell you a million ways you can order a coffee, so you settle on a caramel macchiato. You love it, and you feel like, I got this coffee culture thing down. That is until you go into a local coffee shop or a real coffee shop. You feel like this place is simpler, and it's truer to life. It feels organic, authentic. You immediately feel like, this is where I should be. That is until you tell them you want a caramel macchiato, and they look at you like an alien. You start to become agitated, and they respond, we don't, have a car we don't have caramel, but we can make a macchiato, 
and we only have one size. You reluctantly accept a macchiato that they have, and you become angry once you get it. Why? Because it actually tastes like coffee. And it's not in a 12-ounce cup. It's in a 2-ounce cup with a lot of foam and espresso. Even though that place felt like the real deal, you were more imitated, and so you return the drink, uh, or you, so you return to drinking the hot, sweet milk beverage that 7-Eleven erroneously calls cappuccino. You experience in that moment what it is like to be an outsider. Maybe coffee's not your thing, but something uh, that you've experienced for the first time, you learn that the language is familiar, but I just don't get it because you're an outsider. Starbucks got you close but set you up for failure when you met the real deal. You hadn't acquired a taste for the real deal, and the language made you feel confused. Because you didn't take time to actually consider, to listen, to ponder what they were actually saying to you. And I think that that kind of gives us an idea about what we see in this passage in Mark chapter 4. And here's the main idea if you're a note taker or just to help you listen along. The most important thing in your life is how you hear and respond to Jesus. Because the word of God divides people into two groups. Say it one more time. The most important thing in your life is how you listen or how you hear and respond to Jesus because the word of God divides people into two groups. In our passage, we will see two types of people. Uh, you saw the first half of this parable. Uh, and the first, the first group is the obstinate outsiders. That's what we'll call them. And then the second group, we're going to call them the informed insiders. So the first group of people that we're going to look at, the obstinate outsiders. To give you just a little bit of context before we dive in, if you're just coming in today and you're like, I haven't read the book of Mark, I haven't read it in a while, uh, here's what's happening. Jesus has been introduced as the Son of God. Uh, the only people that have really been understanding that he is the Son of God are the demons so far. So people just get, get it twisted on who Jesus is. And most uh, uh, the worst uh, part about that is the people who really get it messed up are the religious, and especially the religious leaders. And so we've been seeing opposition to Jesus for the last couple of chapters in the book of Mark. And so that's, that's, that's where this uh, parable comes. Uh, Jesus says, or Mark has shown us what these obstinate outsiders look like. Okay, so these outsiders have three obstacles to hearing. The first one is that they fall prey to Satan. You saw it in our text. Falls on hard, hard ground, Satan comes along, snatches it away. Well, he said the birds, but we'll see that in a second. Uh, and then the second one is they fear pressure. They fear pressure. And then the last obstacle to hearing is they fret over problems, prosperity, and pleasure. So let's look at the first one. They fall prey to Satan. Look at verses 14 to 15. It says, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones sown along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Jesus tells us plainly what this group's problem is by using the illustration of a hard-beaten path that would be walked upon through the field, where there's, you know, growing all sorts of crops. The seed, which represents the word, is the word of God, the word of the gospel, the word of truth. Uh, it takes on many names in in the scriptures, but the same thing is, is being communicated. Well, that word, that seed, is snatched away by Satan. 
These soils are none other than the hearts of men. And this first one appears to be the hardest of hearts. A person with a heart like this doesn't allow the word of God to penetrate deeply. Many commentators suggest that these are atheist types, but I think the context of of Mark actually tells us that these are actually very religious types of people. If we look just back at Mark chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus has asked if he should do good on the Sabbath. Basically, that would be like, should I do good on Sunday in church? Should I do good to my fellow man? In the context, it's a man with a withered hand. Jesus is going to heal him. So he says, should I do good to him? And they fall silent because their religion is all about outward appearances. It's not about meeting the needs of those in, in need. So it says this about Jesus. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, this isn't the formal atheist in view. These are religious people who are looking at uh, Jesus with suspicion and hatred. But why? Well, for two chapters, we have seen Jesus's compassion on the marginal when he calls Levi the tax collector. That would have been an outsider. And he calls the outcast and he's healing people. He's meeting the needs of the poor. And they hate it so much so that, that in verse 22, they say that all of his miracles are being done by the power of Satan. Their religion hadn't been about loving God and people in practical and sacrificial ways. It actually became a ritual to burden the brokenness society with rules and a means toward selfish gain and recognition. So much so that Jesus would say about the Pharisees that that everything that they do, they do so that they can be seen by men. And that, that they can have the best seats at the table. That is a seat of privilege in society. And that's what they use their religion for. In other words, the language about the kingdom of God and his Messiah, it took on a similar but different meaning than God had intended in the, in the beginning. This principle of being indifferent and penetrable by the word of God applies to the irreligious, for sure, the atheists. But we would be mistaken if we didn't think it applied to us in this room this morning. Maybe we can't relate to calling Jesus a pawn of Satan. But what is your normal response to the singing, the praying, the reading, and the preaching of God's word, whether it be in a Bible study or at church? Do you respond after church by talking about your own self-interest right after this service? Effectively having the word of God, like we see in this text, snatched away from yourself and, and others? This is what Satan does to the person with the indifferent or the hard, callous heart, he just comes alone and takes it right off the surface by distracting you with other things. If you're a teenager here, actually, if you're an adult here, uh, maybe you just go to social media right after the service. You check your Facebook status, your Instagram likes. All of these sorts of things can distract us from the Word of God. It's like we listen casually to God's Word and then we discuss things like sports, OU, OSU, Maybe OBU, politics, business, family, where are we going to go to lunch, and other things immediately after hearing the weighty matters of God. With this sort of listening, it is no wonder that the moment a pastor or a Christian in general speaks about things like justice or meeting the needs of the poor or going after the marginal in society, that many in the church quickly respond by accusing people of being like leftists. 
social justice warriors, Marxists. The kingdom of God is is not about reaching our fellow man. It becomes something about our own pleasures and and ourselves. Friends, the good news of of the kingdom of God is about the life of Jesus, his redemptive work on the cross, and his resurrection, and his return to make all things new, for sure. That is the gospel. It is, it is the story of Jesus. But let's not get it twisted, right? Uh, the news comes with a sort of power that continuously sanctifies us into the image of Christ. That's what we see in the book of Romans. And so if we're being transformed into the image of Christ, that means our lives begin to look like Jesus' life in the gospels. We're not going to be perfect at it. When Jesus comes back, that sanctification process will reach its climax and we will be glorified. But until then, we do make strides and we begin to look more and more like Jesus. One way we can guard against this is by discussing after church how an element of the service uh, spoke to us before we talk about other things. We can begin to listen eagerly uh, to see more of God's glory and then how that might push us out into society uh, and into where we just do life. Uh, and how to put that word into practice. The main reason many of the religious in Jesus' day didn't hear when they listened to Jesus was they were expecting a different type of kingdom, a different type of Messiah, all that would come to bring about their glory and their power and their deliverance. They could care less about what was happening to the marginal and the poor and even their enemies when we know that God loves his enemies. They wanted a Messiah that was all about them. The second obstacle to the obstinate outsider's hearing is they fear pressure from enemies. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. It says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately fall away. Many of us probably can relate to this group, uh, to this group that uh, the Scripture says has no root. We in America, especially in the Midwest or the South, I don't know where Oklahoma falls in there, Mid-South, whatever we are, uh, we have built an entire brand of Christianity that profits on this sort of listening. A Christian faith that thrives on mountaintop experiences, hype, excitement. We do it through camps. We do it through conferences, and we do it through consumeristic churches. Hear me out. Camps and conferences are great. I go to conferences. I've worked at camps. I'm not anti-fun or against emotional expression, but the call to follow Jesus has a cost, and Jesus challenges us to count that cost. We all have temperaments, right, that range from Captain Kirk to Spock, Right? That's how God made you. But your feelings or your emotional expression or your experiences are not the measure of whether the word of God is actually taking root in your heart. The fruit of repentance and perseverance is. So Mike Tyson, for example, would go on to say right before he fought Evander Holyfield, everybody has a plan until he gets punched in the mouth. Right? And that's kind of what's in view here. All right? Uh, we... We all emotionally respond, and we all have a plan, some kind of plan to follow Jesus. But when that ancient enemy of God and his people, Satan, comes punching, throwing fiery darts your way, 
our plans had better exceed the kind of experience and emotional-driven faith that has become commonplace in our country. Scripture says that, for example, Esau saw repentance with tears, but that he couldn't find it. He was emotional. Judas was emotional. We don't bank on our emotions or our experiences. Endurance is the true measure of the kind of faith that saves. Maybe you've done great things for God. You've cast out demons. You've been healed in the name of Jesus. You've healed in the name of Jesus. You speak in tongues. You do whatever. You do all of these sorts of grandiose things for God. But Jesus says on the last day, he's going to separate people into two groups. He's going to have goats. He's going to have sheep. Here's the scary thing about that illustration that Jesus gave. The goats are the people who did great things for God. Jesus, I cast people out. I cast demons out in your name. I healed people in your name. Jesus, I did all of these great, wondrous, visible works in your name. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Go into the outside, the outer darkness. That is where the people of God, or not the people who are not the people of God are, remaining under the curse of God. They did great things for Jesus. But here's the thing. The sheep, they said, Jesus. How did we serve you when you gave water in my name, when you gave shelter in my name, when you did all of these tasks that were unrecognized and sort of thankless and what we would see as very being, like being very minimal, like nobody sees these sorts of things. That's what God sees, and God sees that as big. Maybe you had a great camp experience, you walked an aisle somewhere, you signed a card, was moved by a big-name preacher at some conference, a crusade. The question for you and for me is, will we endure to the end? You can do a self-check of how you're doing uh, by when you face pressure. Jesus says there's no root, and so they fall away. The word fall away is going to be used also in Mark 14 when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Basically, when they come to arrest me, when they strike the shepherd, you guys are going to scatter. You're going to fall away. The pressure gets turned up. What happens to Jesus' guys? They all run away out of the Garden of Gethsemane, leaving Jesus alone. Now, we do know from Scripture and from tradition that that was not the final story for these guys. They were going to be beaten, to be persecuted, to be tossed in prison, and all of them would give their lives for preaching this word. But in our text today, an obstacle to hearing is, is that you fall away on account of the word. Compromising ethical practices that work to promote or to sort of grease your own pockets. Ignoring God's call on your life because of family pressure. Family tells you, hey, why are you living that way? And they may be Christian, but you know that God is calling you to live a certain way. Or silencing the voice of God to compromise sexually in order to be accepted by society or by a particular person. These are all pressures that we might face in this world. Now, in our country, we're not going to probably face imprisonment. We're probably not going to face uh, being beaten for our faith. But you will face a sort of social persecution where you are, are, are put on the outside of, of uh, the, the, the social context in which you may live. But here's the thing. Consistently resisting the voice of God And any area of our life will impair our ability to hear God in in all of our areas of life. God is sovereignly working his plan. And sometimes what that means is, is it won't go well for you. When you live a life worthy of the gospel, uh, 
people uh, will push you to the, to the margins. But you keep going, brothers and sisters, because your suffering, according to 1 Peter, is precious in his sight, and it is perfecting your faith, which, which he says is more precious than gold. Now, the goal isn't that we go out and just start doing good works. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to imply here. Although we, we do good works, it's not that we try to do it to earn favor from God. But we do what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who for the joy, that's you, set before him, endured the cross. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. The pressure got turned up. Jesus kept going forward because he was about the kingdom of God. So I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters. You endure by looking to Jesus. The last obstacle to this group's hearing is they fret over problems, prosperity, and pleasure. In verses 18 and 19, we read, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This group uh, is worried about the anxieties, the amenities, and the affluence in this life. I can't say for certain, but I bet that that's going to be most of our struggles uh, in this country, in this room today. These are normal anxieties here, the normal anxieties of life, which is what makes them dangerous because some of these things are good to think about and wrestle through and wrestle with. Think about Mary and Martha, for example, here. You remember that story? So Jesus and his guys and other followers, they come to Lazarus's and Martha and Mary's house. And Martha, she's slaving away in the kitchen, trying to serve people, doing a very good thing. She comes to Jesus. What does she say to Jesus? Jesus, my sister, she's not doing what women in this society do. She's not looking to serve those who need to be served right now. Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, Martha, you're worried. You're worried about much. You're anxious about much. But Mary has chosen the better thing. Why? Because she wasn't ignoring necessarily doing good. She chose the better thing of sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing from her Lord. Martha was worried about good things, but it overwhelmed her to the point where she was not coming to Jesus to listen to Jesus. Today, this might take on thoughts like, where should my family live? Or, where will the kids go to school? We obsess about where they go to school and activities, and, and our kids' lives start to crowd out uh, kingdom focus in our own lives. Uh, what will the results of this test be, the blood work at the doctor be? Uh, how much should I work? Where should I work? It's all about trying to get ahead in life. And so I'm going to prioritize um, getting ahead in money and riches. How do I keep the peace with my spouse and love them well? Will I ever find the right potential spouse? All of these things are good things to think about, but when they become ultimate things and they replace focusing on the kingdom of God and God himself, they become an idol. Peter says to cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. David in Psalm 55 would say, cast your cares on him and he will sustain you. Maybe the pains of this world, the anxieties of this world, push you to seek pleasure in many things. Travel, food, drink, 
time with good friends, whatever it may be, whatever it is your thing, whatever your thing is that, that brings you a level of comfort and, and, and pleasure, none of those things are bad. But when we run to those things to escape, and we take our eyes off of Jesus and his mission, all of these things become harmful uh, to our life, to our soul. Both Paul and Jesus gave great warnings about riches, yet much of our Christian voice today is directed at the obvious social sins out there in the culture. We should talk about those things, but I think we should be producing more literature and sermons on the dangers of greed and riches and pursuing comfort and pleasure because that's what most of us are going to be threatened by, and those are going to be the things that lure us away from focusing on Jesus So, friends, the first soil that we looked at had no chance. The second one says had no root. Um, This one, uh, it says that it becomes unfruitful because it's worried about all these things, so it has no fruit. Well, the final one that we look at today is uh, this last group, and it's called the informed insiders. And what they do is they produce the fruit of God. So the outcome of hearing is fruitful production. I'll try to speed this up. Verse 20 says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Finally, we see a picture of someone that actually, they actually hear, they actually get it. They understand the language of the kingdom. The proof of hearing, though, is that the word is found in accepting and producing fruit. Notice that not everyone produces the same fruit, so we don't look at everyone and go, oh, they're a bigger Christian than me. Paul would say, someone sows, another man waters. It's God that gives the growth. He gives the increase of what the word does in our life. But nonetheless, they all bear fruit. Very quickly, I want to make the point that producing fruit is none other than doing the will of God. And I say that because of the story that precedes where we're at this morning. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 to 32, it says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived... Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. Standing outside is not just Mark telling us their physical location. This is a a theological uh, idea that Mark is working with here. Outside, outsiders are those who are under the curse of God. So when you come to the book of Revelation, it's going to be those people who are cast outside that experience the wrath and the judgment of God. And it says a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. Here are my mother and my brothers. Listen to it. Whoever does God's will is my mother and sister and brother. Mark intentionally repeats the phrase outside, linking it with our text today for those who are outside, getting all of the teaching about the kingdom of God in parables, meaning they're not getting the full teaching. They're not understanding. But it's, it's not because Jesus is like, I don't want you guys to understand. They've already committed themselves to being against Jesus and his kingdom. So here, here's how it works, though. When, when the word is preached, uh, Paul would say it, it goes out, and for some, it's like an aroma leading to life, or it's the power of God. But, but to those who are perishing, he says, it's foolishness. It's like an aroma of death. So when, when God's word goes out, it, it cuts. It puts a group here and a group here. And what that does for us, it just reveals what's already in our 
heart. So this parable functions as a sort of check engine light on the dashboard of our lives. The first three soils are basically saying, these are lights that are saying, hey, pull over. You think you're okay, you're not okay. The last soil is one like normal lights on your dash that you always see, basically saying the pressure is right, everything's good, just keep, keep moving in that direction, you're going to be okay. But let me add this, our hearts, Jeremiah says, is, is desperately sick, and he says that we can't even understand our own hearts. So, so what does God do? He says, I'm going to command you, not just give you a suggestion, I'm going to command you to find church community, because here's what happens. Other people can read the fruit in your life. When my kids were growing up, my youngest, uh, I remember having her, and she was just, gosh, she was so small. And now she's like this, and she doesn't see herself growing. But guess who does? Her parents. We're, we're amazed every day. We're like, whoa, you grew an inch overnight. You're going to be eight feet tall in the, in the WNBA one day. This is what community does, friends. Uh, we get to look at each other's lives and say, you're doing well, keep going. Or, hey, brother, sister, you're not doing well. You never make hard decisions for Jesus. You turn your head away from the poor. You, you, you don't prioritize the community. You, you fill in the blank. But others can see it and they can alert us to if we have any fruit. This is the point of James when he says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And then in James 2, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith, what, I, what we can't see, by my works, my fruit. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Here's, here, here's what happens. Uh, James isn't saying, go do good things. God is going to accept you. James is saying, God has done good things. He's changed my heart. The gospel came with power, and therefore, there's fruits, there's works to meet needs. Friends, good theology, religious observance, apart from a religious faith, faith that moves you to seek to meet needs, to care about the least of these, that sort of religious faith and theology is no better than the demons. They get it. They know who Jesus is. But they're not impressed by him, and they're not seeking to do good. I'll close by wrapping up um, from Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we get our quote today in our passage in verse 12. He says this, therefore, uh, sorry, he says, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Um, our text today says, turn and be forgiven. 
To be on the outside is to be excluded from the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy of God. What was happening in Isaiah's day, as well as Jesus' day, and this is what happens in Isaiah, I'll just, just so you have the context so you don't think I'm making things up. Chapter 1, Isaiah says, well, God says through Isaiah, keep your religious practices. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your songs. I don't want your prayers. I don't want any of that. Why? Because you're oppressing the poor. You're refusing justice among you. So much so that God says, this is what I want from you. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. The same thing James is saying. And after condemning Israel for their idolatry, we get a song. God says, I planted a a vineyard. I come to my vine. I want to see fruit. I want to see grapes. Behold, I see wild grapes. Then he calls those wild grapes uh, oppression, injustice, bloodshed, and outcry. That's not why I saved you. I saved you to be a blessing. I saved Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing. Israel, I'm calling you to myself so that you will be a blessing. Israel, when you get into the land, you're going to be prosperous. Don't let your prosperity go to your head. Forget me. Carry about the foreigner. Carry about the widow. Carry about the oppressed among you. Love God, love people, push back darkness. That's what Frontline says its mission statement is. That's what the kingdom of God is about. We, it's about believing, and then that belief and that word sitting down in our hearts and, and pushing us out to a dying and lost world. Here's what happens. Jesus, the incarnate word of God, the, the true seed, the true bread comes from heaven. And here's how we know that God isn't trying to hide his word from us. Not only is he giving us the word, he actually sends his word. He sends his son who puts on flesh. He proclaims the kingdom. He demonstrates the kingdom through his deeds. And then he's sown in dishonor as a seed to to go into the ground and die. He dies on the cross. But then rising from the grave, he produces a fruit. He produces uh, a multiple fruit. He Uh, fruitful production of of many women and children from that time and forward and going forward that are going to come into the kingdom of God. God wants to communicate his word, but it's our obstinate hearts that cause us to miss it, causes us to miss the gospel. I'll close with Romans 16. Paul basically, I'll sum it up, says, I've been preaching this gospel for 16 chapters in this book of Romans. And this mystery that was hidden, I've made it plain. I've explained it. So much so that the nations, the Gentiles, those outside are coming in. And then he says, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So with that, let's pray. God, we recognize that our good works, our deeds, they're, they're, they're nothing but the fruit of, of faith in you. It's, it's, it's not that we work to come to you, but it shows that our hearts are receptive to your word. And so to that end, God, I just pray that you would, you would help us to cherish your word and that your word would take root and that it would produce fruit in Shawnee, in Oklahoma City, the rest of this state, and beyond until you return. In Jesus' name, amen.